and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today is the 2021 year in review show because that's what you do at this time of year is for your review shows. And uh, as usual, I brought back my uh, colleague and occasional guest host, uh, Guy Anderson, to interview me on the course of events and what happened in the past year. Hope you enjoy this. Guy, thanks for taking the time today. It's my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. So you're running the show today, my friend. Uh, let's talk about what happened in the last 12 months. Yeah, exactly. Let's look at let's look back at a really successful year for you. I mean, congratulations, first of all. I mean, this is our second year in review, but you've done over 200 podcasts now in the fintech space. So it's probably no one in the country that has a better understanding of the fintech landscape than than you. And here we are in Canada, but I think uh, a lot of your listenership is uh, is in state bound as well, and or maybe global. So congratulations on that. And it's all over the place. Still seems to be pretty Canadian centric, but whatever. I just have fun recording stuff, and people listen. So that's how it's all up. We're putting out good content, and I think uh, I think the the industry is better for it. So thanks thanks for that. So, but as you said, this is a, a year in review. We did this last year, and the one thing that we talked about in our call last year. You were looking forward to 2022, and the number one podcast you were looking forward to at that time was a company called Cinchi. And yeah. Cinchi, if if, uh, if I remember correctly, is is a company that rather than putting data in silos or into a data lake, they have a data fabric, which seemed to be leap, leaps a, a ahead of everybody else. So can you just give us a, a, a little bit of a review of your conversation with Cinchi and what your thoughts were? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I picked them as one of the two like most best fintech technologies that I saw last year. And I always say that they kind of broke my brain when I sat down with them the first time. It was a completely different way of looking how to manage data. And the way to look at it is this. You either, traditionally, you either integrate two pieces of software point to point. So company A talks to company B, which is fine. And then, but if you want company C to talk to it or software C to talk to it, you have to connect, create those direct connections. And that can create this giant latticework. The other way to do things is to basically have what's known as a data lake. So a giant dumping ground of data where you just throw everything in one place and then have everything pointing out. What Cinchi did was it's basically, the, the, the problem is with the data lake is it's a lot of unstructured data and you may be taking stuff you do or don't need and you still have to basically just point it all out in one direction. What Cinchi did was it was kind of a layer that created this network that allowed you to plug into a network and just pull the data that you needed in and out. And the great thing about that was that it's, you know, the like, the way to look at it, it was it's like taking a plug and plugging into a wall socket. You don't have to worry about connecting about connecting whatever stuff. It's simply like, I want this software to talk to everything else connected to Cinchi. Okay, great. Well, where you don't have to worry about where certain things are stored. Like the client data is stored maybe in three different places, but it all synchronizes to one point in the network and then pushes out. It was it's honestly it's something hard to wrap your head around, but frankly, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, I would agree. My understanding of it isn't nowhere near yours, but uh, it sounded pretty interesting to me at the time as well. So I would be remiss, though, if uh, if I didn't ask you about your almost obsession last year with your uh, podcast on open banking. I think you had no less than seven episodes on the topic, and you had a five-part miniseries, if you will, at the beginning of the season. So let's talk about open banking a little bit. Like Obviously, it's a topic of interest to yours, and I think it should be a topic of interest for most people. So let's give a bit of an autopsy on, on what you think about open banking, where things are going right now. Yeah, well, it's 9.30 and you're going to make me want to drink talking about this. Only because I live in Canada, I got to deal with the realities of the state of it. So here's the thing. Let's start by defining open banking. Bottom line is the simplest form of it is the ability for you to take the data that you create within a financial institution and readily access it and direct it to whomever you want to direct it to. That data is 
should be technically yours and you can push it out to others. Now, why is this important? Because data is what tells other institutions about who it is you are. And that data is what allows the current bank or financial institution you have to make decisions regarding services and products and things they can offer you. And the reality is it's, it's a rich treasure trove. So think about the fact that Google, Facebook, and lots of other companies have been built to build multi-billion dollar companies trading off of our data in order to market to us. This has the ability to basically open banking is about our right to access that in a way that is complete, easily accessible, and actionable. And what that will allow us to do is it will allow us to basically potentially, this is the biggest possible wave of change happening around the world. Give me some examples. Something as simple as switching, as comparing and switching bank accounts. You'll be able to suck up actual data and have a third party actually tell you where you can get a better deal elsewhere, right? So that's simple stuff. Then you have the ability for third party lenders to understand you on a, a deep level. So you can't get a loan from a traditional bank for whatever reason, probably because you run a small business and no small bit, no bank wants to lend you any money. But the being able to extract that data of your bank banking transactions to see that you're responsible, you know, with your money will allow them to better underwrite you and determine that your risk level is lower than than other people and therefore lend to you at lower levels. It will also allow for, honestly, a mass proliferation of new innovative technologies we haven't even started to think of yet, right? Because the reality is, is that that is such a treasure trove of opportunity. Think about all the signals in that data, where I'm spending money, what I'm spending it on, what the patterns are, what the routines are. Think about the number of applications that can be built solely around nudging you to make better financial decisions alone. Think about the ability for technology to sit over top of it is to say, hey, you know, you only spend, you know, you only really need 5,000 in your bank account every month. You're currently sitting at 7,000. Push this button for us to, to, to basically deploy this either to the investments that your financial plan said you should be buying, or you have a house purchase coming up in six months. Let's just push this over to a high interest savings account. By the way, it's not bank A that you're with has it. It's bank D that has it. We're going to transfer it there seamlessly. Think about the, it's the ability to actually create technology that truly is client-centric in its focus. And in order to do that, we need to be able to access this in a secure and effective manner. Problem is, financial institutions realize that this is a potential mortal threat to them because their entire systems are, a lot of their systems are predicated on friction. They want to make it hard for you to leave, which is a terrible, terrible way to look at how to handle consumers. But that's how financial institutions looked at it. But here's what it comes down to as a basic principle. If I create the data you know, off of my transactions and my habits and my behaviors, should you yeah. own said data? Thank you. And technically, under law in Canada, in the Canada is an example because we're the worst at this, under PEPIDA, we technically have the right to all of our data, but right now they make it hard to get to it. So if anything, it's not that we're debating, you know, they won't they still won't acknowledge that we have the full right to all of this. They still say it's theirs, but clearly there's a law that says otherwise. But the reality is, is that we're really just debating the method in which you give it to us. And what and frankly, given the fact that it's still available only in certain forms of, you know, there's no APIs, it's only available in certain downloads. Or, or PDFs, we're just, you know, now at this point, it's just, they're being spiteful about it is the way I look at it. It's like, it's there, but you got to crawl over glass. And it's not even as rich as it could be. So the reality is, is that they are entrenched institutions, oligopolies around the world, not just Canada, are fearful of this because they, friction is their friend. Innovative new technologies that help the consumer are dying to get their hands on this because that's how they will grow and monetize and actually create great, greater social change and greater, and greater financial social change and greater inclusivity of the entire industry. So I'm glad you brought that up because one of the pushbacks, I think you even brought it up in a number of your podcasts, was that the data, if you have open banking, it was to stop the Googles of the world and such like that, who already have a lot of data on us 
to actually take that information and, and open a bank account for us and, and basically take over the banking industry. Yeah, let me flip that around. What's wrong with that? At the end of the day, consumers vote with their wallets. At the end of the day, in a truly open market without basically uh, artificial obstacles to the open market, consumers vote with their wallet. If Google comes up with something that I find is more useful and benevolent to me and benefits me versus an independent, I should have the right to choose to do that. Now, well, are they going to open up because, their own bank? I highly doubt that because they don't want to get involved in regulation. It's too, it's too much, it's too daunting. What's more normal, what's more likely is that they will work with banks who offer their services as a platform and they will basically make these people compete for the business, which is fine. But at the end of the day, if as much as I can't stand Facebook, if consumers choose to work with Facebook as a financial platform, that is their right. And we are denying them that. I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, it's uh, it's our data. It's our right. I look at it the same as, as healthcare in the fact that our health records are our own. And it's pretty darn hard to get access to our own records. So, well, we so had, we've had a fiasco in our country around that. Let's not even get yeah. into it. So give us an idea. Like you, you had a podcast with a company called Flinks. Who are they and who are some of the other big players in the open banking space? Well, I mean, the so look at who the ecosystem players can be, right? So you have the current incumbents, which are the financial institutions. You have, on the other end, the fintechs who want to do stuff with that data. And in the middle, you have the pipes. So the pipes are people connected to. So who are the players in that space? Well, the biggest ones are the Yodelies and Plaids of the world, who basically got to love American innovation. They didn't wait for permission to just did it, and then they can go to figure it out afterwards. Whereas in Canada, banks get to play like get to play hardball with these companies. But Flinks is a Canadian version of that, right? So all they do is they they basically can they are the connector. They come up with the systems to allow you to extract data and go from one place to another. So they're vital to the ecosystem. But again, the honestly, the way that some of these institutions play with them, they're, you know, I've, I've heard of some of these contract negotiations with these people where they're like, you know, they're saying these institutions, look, we can come up with more secure ways to service your data and put it out there and put less of a burden on your systems. And they're like, okay, great. We'll totally work for you. By the way, here's a contract that completely cuts you off at the knees. Like it is, it is remarkable, the lack of innovative thinking going on in these institutions. Remarkable is right. So let's move on. We had a few podcasts that, that we had corresponded on that you wanted to highlight as, as your highlights for the uh, for the year. So let, let's uh, shift into Data Swift. That's one of the one of the ones that you wanted to review this year. Yeah. So Data Swift, I think, is probably the most exciting technology I've seen all year. I think every year I kind of anoint one as this is probably the coolest thing I've seen. It's actually something I believed in for quite a while. It goes back to the open banking place. So Data Swift is a personal data wallet. I can't, it's, it's, the, the acronym is PDA. I can't remember what the heck the A stands for, but I was referred to it as wallet. Personal data account, probably. And what it is, is a platform for secure storage of your personal data. So this is kind of think of it as if I have open banking and I can store everything, I could technically leave it in the institution connecting institutions, or I can extract it and keep it myself, right? But we're not talking about just open banking. We're talking about everything, open health, open data, everything. And the idea is, is that with open, with Data Swift, if you can integrate that the Data Swift into the different, different platforms that are there, when you use Data Swift to sign in to the platform via Facebook or whatever it is, every piece of data, because you, you know, assuming you're legally entitled to it all, can be extracted. And you now have ownership over that data within your personal data account. And why is that important? Because now you have a centralized wallet or per secure place to store everything, which think about the, the aspects of what that does or the potential for what that does. A, it allows the paradigm to be flipped and allows me to opt my data into certain markets or studies or whatever it is and monetize it myself. So it's not Google monetizing off it. 
it's not Facebook monetizing off it. It's the end user monetizing off of it. And that is something I truly believe is something I've been talking about this in the podcast for years, but they are working on the execution of this. And then in addition to that, think about the ease of utility it creates for the individual, right? So I want to apply for an insurance policy. Think about, guy, your insurance license, you know how painful it is to basically fill out one of those applications, let alone try to collect medical information, which is sitting all over the place. Imagine instead, you basically receive something to your phone, The basically you acknowledge the application is what you were looking to do, they give you a list of all the information you have to disclose, everything from your, your tax identification number, depending on what country you're in, sin, social security, whatever it is, your name, date of birth, gender, health records, financial institution data, everything that you would normally collect for an insurance company. In theory, if it's sitting in here at the push of a button can be disclosed. Now, here's the other crazy part of this. Technically, the network verifies the data amongst itself and verifies the validity of it. So in theory, it is possible for something that I call disclosure list disclosure. So disclosure list confirmation. So picture this, KYC AML data. We have to provide identification. We have to provide all this stuff to prove it is that we are who we are. Instead, if the network received, if the network itself or this platform got to a level of, of acceptability that people where they could prove that, hey, if someone's got a personal data account and their personal data score is below, above a certain threshold, that is, that is to say, Jason's personal data account has this much data on Jason. And that the probability of it not being anyone other than Jason is 0.00001, right? That's actually more secure than me showing you my driver's license. So picture a situation where I go to open up an account and I say, connect to DataSwift, boom, the KYC AML would just basically say, this is who Jason says he is, confirm yes or no. And it can confirm yes based on a probability score. Now, it doesn't have to disclose my ID. It doesn't have to disclose any of this other stuff. Technically, the fact that the system says yes is sufficient. So that's one of those things that at scale, when we look at this, it's like, oh my God, like the, think about how much more secure that is as opposed to what we have now, which is clients sending freaking driver's licenses over email half the time. So you think about the unsecure way in which we transmit data now versus a system that not only is super secure, but also the ability to verify without actual full disclosure and be trusted for it. That is game changing. I mean, like that is, that is going to, re that would reduce the amount of, of identity theft, like precipitously if it ever gains scale. I think that's amazing. And I think your example on the insurance side is, is pretty apropos because yeah, I was, I was thinking about just lending, for example, you, you're going, you're trying to get a loan. And then if rather than going through a bunch of different applications uh, and, per, and having to pull up all that data and, and supply it to the lender, you could automatically do that with a dozen different lenders and get the best rate or the best terms that you're looking for. Exactly. I think we've gone through this entire period of digitization where it was, oh, we had all this paper-based world and let's digitize everything. And now it's all digital, but none of it talks to anything else. And then you have some integrations where things are now starting to get pushed. But at the end of the day, the problem is it's still fragmented. Like it's still fragmented and there is no one truly trusted source that's up to date. You know, for example, I can collect all the data I can on my clients within Salesforce, but I'm still at the mercy of it being accurate. And they have and them notifying me that it's accurate. They change an address. Maybe it takes them two weeks to come back to me, right? They get a, a promotion at work or just even a raise. Where's the checkpoint for me to get that verification? In a personal data account where all the KYC data that I require, like verification of income and everything else, in a world like that where you have a personal data account, 
the delta on what gets paid into the personal data account registers as a salary increase, which then gets pushed to anyone else who's authorized to basically do that automatically. And ta-da, the pipes just work. And suddenly, you know, I get notification that something has to be updated, or maybe I don't even get notification something has to be updated because they don't even have to think about, again, they don't have to, if this is just updating their records, same example, they get paid more one month that registers as a raise. The raise then pushes through to my KYC data, which I have to know what their income range is. Boom, that gets updated. They don't have to sign anything to acknowledge it because the right. system acknowledges that it's real. Now, does anything have to happen with me? Not necessarily. It depends. Is it a $5,000 raise on $100,000 income or is it a $50,000 raise on $100,000 income? So where does the, we design systems where then that information gets pushed to me when there's an action to be done solely and everything else just becomes an automatic routine system in the background. Now that is a utopia. I certainly hope happens. But the key here is that the idea of the personal data account or personal data wallet or locker, whatever you want to call it, is something that facilitates that reality, that utopia becoming reality with mass adoption. Now, fingers crossed, this is one of these, this is one of those platforms where it's like, it's an all or none. Either it gets no adoption, goes nowhere, or it gains network effects of scale. And the more and more things that get on that start to utilize a system like this, the more and more valuable the network becomes and the more easy it becomes to convince others to be on it. Well, let's hope that happens for sure. I mean, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that we come across happens to be state bound or outside of Canada. But one of the things, one of the, I guess, more innovative products, it's not so much a product, but purpose investments, like Psalm Seif is a, is a, <laughs> is a change maker. Like he's, yeah, there's some of the things he's come up with uh, at purpose and even even before Claymore, it's pretty pretty impressive. And your podcast with him this year, I mean, you touched on a bunch of stuff. But like one of the things that you know his claim to fame was the first the first uh, Bitcoin ETF in the world, and that's yeah. how innovative they are. So reflect on your uh, conversation with Sam for a moment. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like we've circled each other in the industry for years, and we probably just got a chance to actually speak this year, and we you know got along like a house on fire. So Sam has always been at the kind of early cutting edge of the industry. He was into the ETF space very early in Canada and sold it off. That was kind of his claim to fame initially. He was funder of, of well, Simple in Canada. So he was initial funder there, initial helped found the company, I think to some degree, like putting people together. And he is, again, that was back when robos were just getting started around the world. So he was the change maker there. And then, yeah, through purpose, two big changes in the last year, three, actually, if you want to get into it. One was the first spot price Bitcoin ETF on the market, which the US still hasn't crossed that boundary because of regulation, but in Canada, we got it done. Yeah, so and you hit a billion was, dollars like a week or something like that. that was, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's clearly indicative of pent-up demand. I mean, people talk about how it's mass proliferated Bitcoin is, but the, the, there's still friction, right? And anything that reduces, what's, what's being proven is that anything that reduces friction to access for the common person or investment accounts or whatever it is, gets the rewards. I mean, they had that less than perfect ETF that launched in the US where it's all based on futures and it's not necessarily the greatest price for tracking Bitcoin, but that attracted a ton of money. So he did that. He also recently launched the first Tontine in North America, which is a, if you want, <laughs> not going to get into that. It's it's a way to basically, for a group of people to basically self-insure to some degree on, uh, or create, basically manage their own annuity as a group, but without having to manage their own annuity as a group. Long story, go read Malevsky's book, King William's Tontine. I highly endorse it. Of course, we're friends, so I have to highly know. I'm kidding. It's, it's a good book. It's a good read. Uh, and I've been hearing, it's funny because because of my connection to him, I've been hearing about this type of investment vehicle 
for well probably close to 10 years as he's been researching and it finally has come into fruition. So yeah. it's exciting, but yeah, he's always been at the cutting edge of this stuff. And even when we went for coffee, you were just walking around talking about cutting edge stuff. And you know, that was, that was the first conversation I'd had with anyone else on DAOs. And sure enough, two months later, constitution DAO makes it well known to everybody <laughs> that, that what DAOs are, that DAOs are a thing for those who don't know distributed autonomous organizations where basically people on online can come together and essentially think of it almost like as a Bitcoin, generated co-op there was one that tried to buy the constitution that did not go so well but it was quite quite it was quite the amusing saga with quite the amusing ending so yeah so that, that was a great interview um it's, it was a great conversation both on and off the recording so one i hope to continue to have yeah that's definitely a, a an interesting conversation obviously we've been following uh saw him in purpose live in the industry for quite a while as well so let's jump over to Alista plan like, like they're they seem to have a, a really interesting product there in there is it more of an optical uh imaging thing where they they pull data yeah. from tax yeah. returns etc so yeah so before you, get, before you get into that though is there a canadian version because that sounds amazing stop talking about that no there is no canadian version i've tried to every now and then i try to get these guys to come north and it's not happening so oh, it's interesting one of the companies i named is the most exciting thing i'd seen last year was fp alpha as a competitor to them in a way so let me go back to Holista Plan. Holista Plan a couple of years ago came on the scene, and I gotta say, fantastic software. Sucks up PDFs of a tax return, spits out a report that actually is user friendly and tells uh, let's very easily lets people know what's going on with their tax return. Very visual, very user friendly. Not a big tax form, only a tax authority would love. But you know, I think something that for advisors is a useful tool for just demonstrating value and helping educate clients. And they've evolved that. They've evolved that in that it rec makes recommendations on tax strategies. And now it does what if analyses and they're expanding now into state taxation. So that's going to be quite the journey for them for a while. So they're, they got their hands full before they consider any other country. That's for sure. And so that's, it's a fantastic software by contrast, FP alpha basically has also gotten into the tax side. I think Holista plans further ahead on that, but they've also, but FP alpha also uses the same kind of technology on estate planning documents. So they use natural language processing and optical character recognition to basically scan estate documents and make recommendations and tell you if there's any, like the very least tell you, hey, this is who's getting what, who's in charge of what, all that other stuff in a very simple, easy to digest format, but then also make recommendations and find errors. It's quite astonishing. To me, that's actually a bigger lift than tax because tax is this numbers in this cell and it corresponds to this. You create a data table and you create the intelligence behind it. It's not a small lift, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's as big a lift as using natural language processing to figure out what a will and power of attorney and trust should say and where the errors are. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that there's still a ways to go on making it 100%, but man, that is both are impressive. And, and honestly, the thing is, is that that type of technology now is far more accessible and far more accurate than things that are standard, especially the tax forms. Tax forms are very standard things. It's, it's you know, that on my tax form and your tax form, the same information is in the same place, right? So it's it's right. a lot easier to apply that in that template, but it's not, it's still a challenge. But overall, yeah, highly, I think both softwares are around providing a tool for advisors to demonstrate value beyond the traditional, which is the investment and financial planning side and kind of the other areas of financial planning. Financial planning gets looked at with financial planning software. Investment gets looked at a billion times over. There's a lot less going on on the insurance tax estate side than what's going on in that space. And I think these guys are very wise to tackle the kind of the bluer oceans of what's what's happening there. These are the companies that make uh, make it really exciting to be in the industry now. And I can't wait for uh, the evolution of these products as they come to, come to the Canadian market. So I'm glad you brought up- No time uh, soon, don't hold your breath. <laughs> 
I'm glad you brought up FPF Alpha because I was going to ask about them as well. But um, you had a really interesting uh, conversation with um, a woman who was the first artist, I think, who launched an NFT. Not, no, not the first artist. So uh, Krista Kim. So the, the you know the biggest the biggest NFT story of the year was that one auction to Sotheby's that was like what six million bucks or something like that. So the, this is what really brought the NFT space into public domain was people saying, "Wait a sec, you're you're paying that kind of money for a gift?" Or so for- I'm just gonna stop you. I think most of your listeners would would know what an NFT is, but it's a non fungible yeah. token, right? Yeah. So non fungible tokens. So the way to look at this is it is something or proof of ownership of something on a blockchain. Right. So let me give you a simple analogy. In theory, your house could be an NFT. So the entire idea is it's basically denoting ownership of something. And it's not meant to be like a currency in itself, like the cryptocurrencies. Right. So that Sotheby's one made a lot of headlines. The next, very shortly thereafter, Krista sold what is known as the Mars House, a 3D artist rendering landscape of a house built on Mars and something that cannot actually be built in human life because it's on Mars. And But nevertheless, it's this uh, crazy 3D landscape. And she, I think it was $600,000 she sold that for. And it was so it was a really interesting conversation because it went some very abstract places because it was really a conversation about VR and AR and the potential and, and the metaverse and what that all meant and how a lot of this stuff is going to when you think about the potential for VR and AR beyond gaming, which is traditionally and, and gaming's great. Don't get me wrong, because gaming gamers are the cutting edge technology users of this stuff. But when it starts, when you start to figure out other applications for it, it's crazy. Like I've heard stuff about how people at Microsoft working on HoloLens don't even have monitors anymore. They just wear the headsets and they have monitors rendered in front of them. They I've seen, uh, I remember, I think it was Money Guide Pro. That was money. I think it was eMoney who who basically created a, an AR version of their dashboard. Now, do I care about a dashboard that just shows me like my finances, like hovering in space, like whatever? Maybe you know, maybe it was it was an adoption of an old of an old uh, technology to a new paradigm. But when you start thinking about like the implications for things like education, hey, I can learn about the lunar landing, or we can all put our headsets on and actually be there. What it happens? She used the analogy of even kids' birthday parties, how creating interactive experiences for kids' birthday parties they can all play on using artificial intelligence, uh, so using augmented reality. Right? You know, she may use a simple example of how bad balloons are. Kids love balloons, but let's be honest, they float away, they pop, and they kill birds. And <laughs> at the same time, they use up a resource that is actually quite limited in helium, which is quite quite astonishing that this is the way we're actually using that. But you think about that and think to yourself, okay, she's like, yeah, you can replace balloons with virtual balloons. It's just like, yeah, my, my six-year-old wouldn't like that, but maybe maybe by the time he's 10, he wouldn't care. So there's all kinds of ways that AR is going to do some crazy stuff. I mean, just last night, I came across an app that utilizing the LiDAR in your phone and the camera would let you take a three-dimensional picture or three-dimensional image of an object and then paste it onto a uh, onto a document you're working on. So think of it as real life cut and paste. I have this coffee mug sitting on my table. I would like to have a picture of that coffee mug, just the coffee mug, no background, whatever, basically just put on one spot of this document or, or graphic image I'm working on, pull up my phone, 3D rendering, boom, gets plopped in. And I was just like, wow, that is seems like an obvious use of AR when you think about it. But seeing it in real life, you're like, that is really cool. Yeah, it's pretty impressive what uh, companies like that are doing, like uh, Matterport and some of those other 3D uh, 3D imaging companies. Uh, I think that's pretty exciting in, in the space. Not necessarily uh, fintech, but technology in, in general. I think there's a lot of overlap, uh, or at least there will be. So, uh, Well, I mean, there was a lot of jokes about Excel, about Microsoft talking about being in the metaverse and all of this. And I think my comment was, yeah, I can't wait to use Excel and AR. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, like, you know, let's, let's be honest. There's some applications where it makes a lot of sense. And there's others where it's just like, no, no, my accounting numbers do not need to hover in space. Thank you very much. So when, when you're talking about NFTs, though, I was reminded of your conversation with uh, Stellar. And I think there's a lot of overlap there because in that conversation, you were talking about fractional ownership of homes or stocks for that example and the ability in the future or probably not too far in the future to actually have a portfolio built of fractional ownership and direct uh direct uh, fractional ownership of shares so what are your thoughts on that and how far that how far that's off well, that already that already exists in a non-blockchain universe right so i mean fractional ownership exists schwab fidelity well simple to a limited degree. I mean, it's at the end of the day, fractional ownership is not that hard to figure out without blockchain because essentially all you do is if you're a custodian and someone wants to buy point you know, ten percent of a share. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So they want to buy ten percent of a share. All you do is you as the custodian have to buy one share, attribute ten percent of it to them, and then you're taking the risk on the rest of it, right? So there's a you now have ownership of 09 percent, so of ninety percent. So this is the thing: is that like it's doable with as long as the custodians are willing to take on the market risk of these products. That's fine. And and the worst you're ever the worst you're ever exposed on a fractional ownership is a maximum of one share. That's it, like or, or less than one share. So it's not that bad. Now. The difference between that and blockchain is that by its nature, blockchain being divisible means that they have to take zero risk. If I, I can own 0.00001 of a Bitcoin, right? Whatever number of Satoshis that Satoshi tokens that works out to, but I don't have, but again, no one else has to take that other risk. Like every other owners own that risk. So I think fractionalized, I think quite honestly, I keep saying it, crypto aside, blockchain itself is a technology. Yeah. is a core fundamental underlying piece of the internet that was missing and something that frankly will underpin so much architecture going forward it will be just insane a the huge obvious yeah. like i mean game changer the fractional share ownership is one aspect of it but the fractional fractional ownership of vacation properties or just real estate in general i think is yeah. is also a huge huge advance that that's going to push forward too right well, I got one for you too. I mean, like, just think about it this way. Someone once told me, and I don't have verification of this, that something like 30% of, of a bank's expenses tend to do with, are, are in some way tied up in reconciliation and processing. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So if you think about that, that basically blockchain by its nature is self-processing and self-reconciling. The reality is, is that like the potential for enormous savings, first for the corporations and then hopefully for the consumers, but I live in Canada, so let's get realistic. It's just going to go straight to the dividend. The reality is, is that there is a massive potential there for massive consumer savings and efficiencies. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately also a lot of jobs being lost because of it, but that's revolutionary technology. So frankly, yeah, I, I can't, the fractionalization, and then let's go back to real estate. And I've had this conversation in this podcast on multiple occasions. When you think Think about the choices you have as a owner of, of a real estate property or your own home for accessing the capital within that property. It is incredibly limited. It's borrowing. That's it. All I can do, all I can do is basically borrow money to access that capital. And there's a cost to that. And that cost is the interest. Instead, and you know, this is heresy in Toronto because people think everything grows at 15% per year, but they'll be slowly mistaken and disappointed going forward. But instead, the alternative could be. I could sell, oh man, I need to raise money. Ugh, I could sell a fraction of my home and I can then buy that back later on. And you know, what's, what's the carrying cost loss? It's whatever change in market value happens between now and then. And, or maybe I don't do that. Maybe I, okay, I say to myself, my largest investment is in my own, my own home. Okay, that's fine. 
but it's stuck in one geographic region. Yeah, you know, no that's, that's a risk. Yeah. There's no diversification. What if instead I held on to 5% of my ownership and used the other 95% to invest in homes throughout North America with other people who also want a diversification? Right. I remember so, having this conversation with your friend Moshe Malevsky 20 years ago, maybe even longer ago about this, about pure diversification, having the ability to own fractional real estate all around the world. And it's finally coming to market. It's finally coming true. Essentially, I think there's a lot of roadblocks to it. Um, I mean, there's tax policy that has to adapt because if I in Canada pay no tax on my income, like, I mean, if I'm owning a percentage of someone else's home, is that's an investment technically, not true. not yeah. not principal residence. So therefore, an exemption wouldn't apply. The U.S. too, if you got a $500,000 cap, where does that apply across the board? Right. So, you know, tax policy would have to be changed, but also the endowment effect, I think, is enormous. The reality is I trust myself to maintain my home to a certain degree. Do I trust other people, right? I mean, we all have a, a common interest in making sure that our property Properties are all the highest smart possible value. But now if I have a 5% stake versus a 95% versus 100% stake, you got a free rider problem. You're right? a renter like, now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, well, no, I'm not a renter, but I'm a free rider, right? I mean, no, I'm just making it, a comparison does, to a renter because renters well, wouldn't anyway. Continue. No, well, I mean, yeah, in terms of no, so there's a known, there's a known, it's known that you know, basically renter maintain maintenance of rental properties tends to be exceed right maintenance of uh, of homes because of the they just don't treat it the same way. But right. at the end of the day, if I could say to myself, well, if the other ninety five percent are all working on renovating and getting the market value up to theirs, eh, maybe I don't have to pay for this renovation, right? So you have a tragedy of the commons type issue and, and this argument around socialism and efficacy. So the reality is, is that this problems any system. There is no utopia in this, but overall, I think it's there's still incredible potential to it. So in the, in the few minutes that we have left, Jason, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. So like last year, I, I asked you what podcast you had planned in the, in 2022 that you're really looking forward to, what type of, what technologies or what fintech companies you're looking forward to interviewing next year. And then I'm going to ask you, I'm going to flip the question and, and put it to you. If you could flip a switch and change anything in the, in, in the industry, what would you do? Like this is, this okay. is one of the questions right. that you ask all your guests. I'm not going to ask you all three of them, but one wish, one my one wish. what would you change? And if it's, okay. if you answer open banking, I'm going to ask you that question again to give me another answer to. Okay, fair enough. Let's see. So first off, looking at next year's, next year's list, I got to say, luckily the podcast is successful enough that I am now booking into June. So there's a lot going on. There's a bunch of interesting stuff. So I have a commitment from Meet Amy, which is Canada's first, uh, uh, digital asset trading platform for advisors. I have uh, also spoken to uh, Amy on Pro? Twitter. Emmy Pro, yeah. yeah, yeah. Meet Amy. Meet Amy is the is the company. Yeah. I've also spoken over Twitter to Tyrone Ross of um, of OnRamp, uh, which is the equivalent player in the U.S. and bigger. He's uh, he said he'd be happy to talk about coming on Q uh, after Q1. So this is me letting everybody know he said that. So now I got to hold him to it. <laughs> so the, those ones will be interesting to see how the world of crypto is being brought to the world of the to the advisor space. I also let's see who else. I guess this, just to sort of comment on that, it's like right. Now, if anyone wants to buy cryptos directly, they have to open a Coinbase account or something like that, right? In yeah. the IROC or MFDA space, there's there's no way for anyone to hold anything directly other than an ETF yeah. or a fund. But Emmy Pro, for example, can give you direct access to Bitcoin and Ether and yeah. and potentially 40 other different coins. Yeah, Emmy Pro and OnRamp, same thing, different countries yeah. uh, in that you can basically, it's full stack solution for for basically uh, buying managing custody all well not custody custody's done yeah, it integrates your, with your portfolio management system yeah 
Exactly, right? So it's, it's basically the trade execution platform that was missing for, for crypto. Honestly, I have, and interestingly enough, I have a lot of, what I'll say, smaller companies that do some kind of interesting stuff like Nudge, RL Advisor, Wellament, that have all, I think there's a lot of newer, smaller ones I'm talking tackling in the first half of the year that I think are all tackling one interesting value proposition of what advisors need to do. And I think that those will be very interesting conversations about the value that they're bringing to the table for people. There's there's less on the kind of like, wow, this is this big industry altering technology. I think these are all like nice pieces that fit into a larger pie that can really make a difference in someone's experience. So, I mean, I have a, I have a lot coming up. I also have, I've been around long enough now that I'm revisiting some of the previous conversations. I've got, uh, I've got other companies that I've spoken to before coming on for updates. And I'll actually, I would say a big, a big theme to some of the early stuff next year around, around integration. There are companies now that are coming out that are quite literally designed simply to provide advisors guidance and tools and and actual consulting on integrating the pieces of their of their digital puzzle and basically doing that for them as opposed to letting them figure out themselves so exciting stuff and then to answer your question because uh, we got to wrap up shortly so yep. yes open <laughs> what's my one wish uh the candidate the canadian regulators will smash the oligopoly don't even get started there so that that is one thing let's let's just so that that's my big dream that will never happen anytime soon but let me think here. So would it be insurance from an open be like because like in the states they've got lemonade, but we don't have that. No, we have direct to consumer insurance. We have direct to consumer insurance. We do through a few players, but no, it, I would say frankly it goes back to the open banking story with that piece, which is that com- governments around the world need to empower consumers and protect them and realize that and, and encourage competition. The rights to our data should be enshrined into law as almost like a freaking. Uh, like a, a human rights level right. Like, do not go near this. And they need to allow for accessibility and portability to allow proliferation of innovation. That's the that's what I see because I think the amount of people who are underserved, misserved, or abused in the system can be vastly decreased with a very competitive landscape if we can give them this. So I think that that is why I'm such an advocate for it because I see the shenanigans that go on in the current institutions and I think that there are market forces that could drive better outcomes. So that's my challenge. And I also think that the biggest wish I have in general for, I'll say for, I see, I won't say it in the U.S. As a U.S., I, I think is just proliferated with advisor innovators and, and entrepreneurs. And I always say this when I talk to people in this country and others, it's like, step one, think like an entrepreneur. Like if you're in this, if you're an advisor in this, in the advisory space, stop acting like you're an employee and calling yourself an entrepreneur. Take control of your business. Think of it like a business, innovate, act, do not be afraid of technology and basically work to create truly truly empowering experiences for consumers. So it goes back to the end of this. We're all here to service someone in this industry. We're all here to service our clients, our customers, whatever it is. And the moment you start extracting rent from them, you've gone too far. And unfortunately, too many institutions have gone too far in the financial institution route with that, with very large bloated infrastructures. There is an opportunity for us to flip the paradigm with the right access to technology, with the right access to data, with the right acts, with the right minds working together, even on their own, on a micro level, innovate around servicing people specifically around their specific needs. And I see a lot of that in the US, I see a lot of niche development, I see a lot of integration, and that is just fantastic. I want to see that proliferate around the world. That's a great way to end it, Jason. Uh, and congratulations on a successful 2021 and can't wait for to hear to listen to all your 2022 yes. podcasts. Well, hopefully it involves more conference travel because that hasn't happened. So anyway, that's one of the price I pay for living in Canada. Anyway, Guy, thank you so much. It's been fun. So that was this week's episode of FinTech Impact. Thank you for joining me yet again and for joining me for the entire year. Greatly appreciate it. Stick around for next year. I kid you not, I have a lot of exciting people coming on in the first half and hope to have some bigger and bigger names as they come along. But thanks for following along on the journey and take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.